Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This week is Parshas Nasai, and we're going to be discussing the halachas of eating milk and then meat, dairy and then meat. And after that, we'll discuss the halachas of eating meat and then milk. So this will be a tour, three-part series. So we'll begin with the halachas of eating dairy, and then if you want to eat meat afterwards. We just had Shavuos, where we had dairy meals and fleshy meals. And according to some opinions, the minig is to eat both in one meal. So let's learn exactly what halacha requires between milk and meat, and then we'll address the other way around, what halacha requires after meat, before you eat milk. So the halacha in Shulchan states that after eating a typical dairy meal, one can immediately eat flesh eggs. You don't have to wait any amount of time at all. However, you do have to perform three acts. They're called rechitza, kinuach, and hadacha, which means rechitza is washing your hands. Kinuach means eating something which will effectively wipe out your mouth. That's eating something. And hadacha means drinking something which will wash out your mouth. Now, starting with rechitza, which is washing hands. Washing hands isn't strictly required because you can also check your hands carefully to make sure that nothing is stuck to them, like no oil residue of dairy on your hands. However, the minig is to wash one's hands regardless of checking. So if a person ate a dairy meal and then wants to eat something fleshig, I mean, I'll give you an example. You ate pizza and then you want to check uh, your chicken soup, right? So you just ate dairy and you're about to eat something fleshig afterwards, you would wash your hands. That would be the minig. Now, many places can maintain that if we ate with a fork and a knife or you drank milk from a cup so you didn't even touch the food at all, it's not necessary to wash or check your hands. And here, too, it would depend how careful you were. And certainly if a child ate dairy and then wants to eat flesh eggs, to eat meat, they should wash their hands because they don't tend to be careful. The next condition, to wipe out the mouth, which is kinuach, means to eat something that will clean out the mouth. So just about anything can be used for this purpose, with the exception of vegetables, which the Gemara seems to say doesn't work, or dates, of all things. And apparently those two things don't work well for this purpose, but you can eat bread, you can eat cookies, whatever it is you want you can eat, and you don't have to like move it around your mouth, you just have to eat it, and then you're fine. And the next condition, the last condition, is hadacha, meaning washing out your mouth, which is drinking. It can be done with any liquid. Some say you should do more than just drink. You should move the liquid about, around your mouth a bit first. And there's no particular order to these conditions. You can do them in any order. You can wash your hands, do kinuach, and then hadacha. You can eat, you can drink, and then wash your hands. You can drink, eat, and then wash your hands. The order doesn't make a difference. But those three things need to be done. Now, all these three conditions are only if you're eating meat immediately after eating milk. However, if you've already waited an amount of time, you don't have to do any of the above conditions before eating meat. Now, the question is how long? So certainly if it's three hours since you've eaten dairy, you don't have to do any of the above conditions. And it seems like, according to many, if it's an hour if an hour has passed since you've eaten dairy, you don't have to do any of the above conditions. But if it's less than an hour, half hour, 45 minutes, and that was when you ate dairy, and now you're going to eat something that's fleshig, you should do these three things, wash your hands, eat something, and drink something.
And it's important to realize that these are our halachas that we need to be mechanach our children about, meaning they should be doing all these three conditions after eating milk if they are about to eat meat. And the same thing is going to be the other way around as well, which means if they ate meat and they're going to eat milk, and for children that are below a certain age, you don't really have to make them wait six hours, as we'll discuss, but you should still have them do these three conditions because this is something they can do. They can wash their hands, they can eat something, and they can drink something. That's not hard for a child of even a very young age to do. So that's something you should always make them do, both after milk and certainly after meat, and we'll talk more about that, Be'ez Hashem, in the coming shir. Now, that's the, this is the letter of the law. Now we can discuss additional uh, halachas, which are kind of like chumras. The Zohar in Parashat Mishpatim says, you shouldn't eat milk and meat, even though you're first eating dairy and then you're eating meat. You shouldn't eat it in one suda and at one, one time. So one suda seems to mean, most people agree, that means that you should bench, which means you shouldn't eat milk and meat within one meal when you're washing without benching in between. So that is something we should do and we should try to be macbed on that if we are eating, let's say the example I gave before, you were eating pizza and you do need to bench and you want to taste um, some chicken soup, you should actually see to bench first before you taste the chicken soup. Bench first before you eat something that's fleshy. Have benching be a half-sake in between the dairy and, uh, and the meat, assuming you need the bench, assuming you washed. So that's one halacha that we take out of the Zaya, that's just something everybody should try to be mapped on throughout the year. However, as the second thing the Zaya says, which is bishachada, you shouldn't eat it at one time, that is a disagreement in the place. And what exactly does that mean? Some people say it means the Zaya holds. You should actually wait six hours, just as milk after meat requires six hours, so too meat after milk requires six hours. Now, obviously, this isn't a very popular minute. Some people did seem to hold by this at some point, but nowadays very few people wait six hours after milk. Others understand that one hour is a sufficient, sufficient partition for meat after milk, according to Zaire. And still others say, when this is what you might have, have heard people be mocked on, is that less than an hour is enough. A half hour is sufficient to divide milk and meat milks, uh, and meat, milk and meat meals. And that's why you would, we'll find people with various different menhagam in this regard, exactly how long to wait after milk before eating meat, whether it's a half hour, 15 minutes, an hour, etc. It's all different variations of interpreting this zayhar. But Regardless of the letter of the law, it's allowed even immediately afterwards. If you have a minute, definitely stick with the minute. If you don't have a minute, you aren't required to wait. Because both the Ramah and the Mishtabura, they do not require you to keep the stringency. Now, this is all regarding the, you know, eating regular dairy, you know, something milky, and then eating flesh eggs. Mainly what you need to do is the three conditions, wash your hands, eat something, and drink something. However, there is one kind of dairy that could require you to wait six hours, and that is hard cheese. It says, the Ramah says, that when someone eats hard cheese, gvina kasha, you're required to wait six hours before you eat flesh. Now, the question is, what is hard cheese? So the place can say it means cheese which has been aged more than six months. That's called hard cheese cheese. So the question is, okay, there's a lot of different cheeses in the supermarket. Which ones are aged six months and which ones aren't? 
So you can check online. OU has a very comprehensive list of different kinds of cheeses. They have like something like 70 cheeses there, which ones are more than six months and which ones are not. Like for, an exa- for example, Monterey Jack is ready after only one month of aging. Parmesan-style cheese needs to age for nine to 12 months. Some par- fancier Parmesan cheeses are aged for years. Blue che- cheeses take from three to six months of age. Some feta cheeses are aged only one month, but others are made, uh, aged up to nine months. Swiss, Swiss cheese is aged for six to 14 months. So there's many different variations, many different halachas. You can take a look, and you can definitely stick with what the Paiskim says, that if it's aged more than six, mo- six months, you should wait six hours. So if you eat an eggplant parmesan, that would require you to wait six hours before eating fleshing. Other Paiskim are even more stringent with this, and they say that the modern process of hardening and aging cheese creates the same level of hardness even less than six months, and even after one month, they have the same product as what was referred to as hard cheese, and you have to wait six hours. So according to them, this is a certain certain Israeli price can hold, that even after eating pizza, you have to wait six hours before eating meat. And though there are people that hold by that, this isn't the typical minute, that is a chumrah. Many people I've heard wait after Parmesan cheese for six hours because it's been aged six months. My uh, previous Rosh Kail, Rosh Levin Miller, he held that this whole stringency really only applies to cheese which truly is pungent, tastes aged, and very, you know, the smelly kind of cheese. And uh, there can actually be some of those cheeses which aren't even aged six months and have a very, very pungent and strong taste. So he held that that's really what halacha applies to. Very, very powerful cheeses. Those are the ones that require you to wait six hours before eating meat, but a, a more of a bland cheese does not require you to wait for six hours, even if it was aged for a long time. So every person can, um, you can do one of these two minhagam. Either you can just go with the six months straight up and look in that list in OU, and you'll see which things are six months and which ones are not. If it's six months, you'll wait six hours. If not, not. Um, Or you can also alternatively take this approach that it's only where the cheese is a very powerful cheese, very strong, pungent cheese, then you have to wait six hours, otherwise you don't have to. Parashas Nasai. This parasha discusses the mitzvah of Saita. So the story of Saita is as follows. There's, so it's about a married woman who has been spending too much time with another man, and her husband gets suspicious. So he gives her a warning, and he gives her a warning in the presence of two witnesses, that she should not seclude herself with that man. And that's really something which is forbidden anyway. Yichud of a married woman is something that's terror prohibited. So he's just telling her not to do something that she isn't supposed to be doing anyway. And he gives her a warning, and a very serious warning, in front of two witnesses. And after she's been warned, she goes ahead and secludes herself with that man in front of two people. So now that she's secluded herself, and it's after a warning, and it's in the presence of witnesses, the Torah strongly suspects that she, she has truly sinned with that man. And she becomes forbidden to live with her husband. Now, this woman insists that she didn't sin, and she's innocent. So they have two choices at this point. They can get divorced, and then she forfeits her suba because she did bring this upon herself. Or they can go to the Beis HaMikdash and go through with the Saita process. If she is innocent, as she claims, she will 
go through it safely, and she'll become permitted to her husband, and Hashem will bless her from that point on. Either if she didn't have children, she'll have children. If she had a hard time in childbirth, she'll have an easy time in childbirth. Her children will be healthier, power, stronger, etc. She'll be zeichet to bracha. But if she is lying, and she has truly sinned, she won't survive the site process. So the first thing that's important to understand is that no matter what happens, the woman in the story is not an innocent woman. She had secluded herself in front of witnesses after being warned not to, and it's a serious sin within itself and very suspicious and was considered precious and wasn't acceptable by the terrorist standards. So even if she hadn't actually sinned with the man, she still needs a kapara, and the sector process provides a kapara. The sector process involves her bringing a carbon and then drinking the saita waters. Now, how were these waters created? They wrote the parsha of saita, all the words in the Torah about the saita. They wrote it on a cloth, the parchment, just as they would write it in the Sefer Torah. And then they immersed the cloth into the water until all the ink was erased into the water, and she drank the water. And then her fate was determined. If she was innocent, she came out fine. And if she had sinned, it, it killed her. So this mitzvah is very unique in that it relies on a nace. It relies on a miracle. No other mitzvah in the Torah is dependent on direct heavenly intervention. All mitzvahs are requirements that we do or not do something. The reward or punishment for them is something the Torah talks about, but in no way connects them to the actual mitzvahs, nor does the Torah guarantee when and how it will happen. We all know that reward can be at times just in the world to come or in this world, but in many different shapes and forms. Punishment also comes in many different shapes and forms. But this mitzvah of Saita depends on the direct intervention of Hashem. He has to cause an unnatural event to occur, the punishment of this woman. And if it doesn't occur, she's pronounced tahar, and halachically she's permitted. The halacha is determined by the fact that she wasn't punished, meaning that the miracle didn't occur. So that's one very interesting aspect of this mitzvah. There's another surprising aspect to this mitzvah. The Torah requires us to erase the parasha of Saita into the water. But it has Hashem's name written on it. It has Yudke Vavke written on it two times. And we know it's a grave sin to erase Hashem's name. And it's also a chil Hashem. Yet, here we do so. So Chazal very famously say, Hashem says, it's better, mutav, that my name, which is written with holiness, should be erased by water so that we can establish peace, we can make shalom between a husband and his wife. Hashem has his hand in this marriage. He wants it to be salvaged, and he wants it to succeed. And if the only way that that can happen is with erasing Hashem's name, Hashem commands us, go ahead, for shalom bias, it's worth it. And remember, this woman and her husband, they, they created this problem to begin with. But Hashem wants to save their marriage. So two things. Hashem is willing to guarantee a miracle on demand to save this marriage. And Hashem commands us to desecrate his name to save this marriage. It's amazing. But as Nayim Latayra explains, that Hashem performing a miracle to bring instant retribution on the woman who sinned is also a desecration of Hashem's name people will see and say, isn't Hashem merciful? Couldn't he give her a chance to repent? Hashem is forced to create this miracle 
and punish her because otherwise the husband would never believe she didn't sin when she survived the process. So now when she survives, he knows he's confident that she's tar, and they'll make up, and the marriage can be, can be saved. So Hashem is kind of overlooking his own honor. He's, he's bringing humility upon himself in order to save this person's marriage. There's an interesting story in the Medrash which sheds light on this halacha, this chazal. The Tana, Reb Meir, he would give a shear Friday night, and it was attended by women as well. One woman stayed late by the shear, and by the time she got home, her candles had already gone out before they had a chance to eat their suda. Now, her husband was a late, a machutzaf, and he kicked her out of the house, and he told her, you can't come back until you spit in Reb Meir's eyes. Now, apparently this was a very, very special woman. El Hanavi approached Reb Meir and told him what happened. So Reb Meir saw that the woman went back to shul, to Davin for her situation. So Reb Meir went back as far as to learn in the shul. And then he approached her and said, you know, I'm suffering from a unique eye malady. Have, my, my eyes are hurting me, which can only be cured if you spit in my eye seven times. So she didn't want to, but he asked her to, so she did. And then he told her, tell your husband, you wanted me to spit once? I spit seven times. Now, the Talmudim of Reb Meir, who witnessed this, were appalled. And they asked, we have a much better solution. We would have brought the husband here and whipped him until he repented for disgracing you and for bothering his wife. So Reb Meir replied, should Meir's honor be greater than Hashem's? Hashem is willing to let his name be desecrated to preserve the peace between husband and wife, shouldn't I? So let's try to understand the depth of this story, and let's try to understand this whole concept over here by Saita. It needs to be understood, because it seems arbitrary. The fact is, Hashem requires us to write the parasha of Saita, and then he tells us to erase it. He is desecrating his name for the purpose of saving a husband and wife's marriage, but why did he command us to write his name? Why did he command us to write and erase the parasha of Saita, which puts us in a position to desecrate his name? Couldn't there be another way to create the water of Saita which wouldn't require the desecration of his name? Why did he engineer the situation that way? Hashem wrote the Torah, right? So clearly, this is all part of it. There isn't any other way to save this marriage. To save this marriage, Hashem's name has to be desecrated, and Hashem is willing to allow that to happen because of the importance of Shalom Bay. The message being given to this husband and wife is, Peace can only be achieved one way. You have to destroy a little piece of yourself. You can't hold on to everything you want, think that your needs are paramount and have all kinds of expectations, and then have peace as well. It won't work. People have all kinds of expectations. They feel they're entitled to things. They feel they're right and the other one is wrong. And the fact is it could even be true. But look over here. Did Hashem do anything wrong? Was he not entitled to the greatest honor? Yet he demonstrates, he demonstrates that that's not how peace is achieved. You can't stand on ceremony, you can't insist on your rights. That's an impossible impediment to peace. Only by giving up some of oneself, giving up on expectations, accepting humiliation, giving up on the honor that we think we're entitled to, can allow us to have peace, shalom bias. Because peace, shalom bias, is an ideal above all everything else in the world. It's worth being wrong. 
to preserve peace. Accept what we have, let go of some of our expectations, and we'll have peace. Yesterday was the yard site of my wife's grandmother, Safta Beck, and she lived her life with this ideal, always. And one of the things she used to say is that in order to say, you know, in the end of Shemana Esra, we say, you have to take three steps back. That's the only way to keep the peace. Rav Meir was telling his Talmidim, yes, we could have beat the husband, we could have brought him in here and whipped him, but that wouldn't have taught him the lesson. And ultimately, they would fall back into Machlaikas. But now, he probably will be embarrassed that I was ready to accept humiliation just to save his marriage. Maybe he'll tell himself, can't I also step back a little from my own honor? Can't I forgive my wife once in a while from being late just to preserve the peace? By me giving up on my own honor, I actually taught a lesson to this husband, a lesson that maybe will enable him to keep the peace, the same way HaKadosh Baruch Hu teaches that lesson to this husband and wife. This concept is invoked in a very interesting fashion by the Rambam as well regarding the mitzvah of Ner Hanukkah. The obligation to light Hanukkah candles is very great. It's Parsume Nisa. It publicizes the miracle and it's a great Kiddush Hashem. The obligation is greater than mitzvahs even that the Torah commands us to do because for a Torah mitzvah, like an esrig, a person doesn't have to collect money to buy an esrig, but in order to do the mitzvah of Ner Hanukkah, Chazal obligated to go out and collect money to be able to do that mitzvah. But what happens if a person finds himself Arab Shabbos and all he has is one candle? Should he use it for Ner Shabbos or should he use it for Ner Hanukkah? And the Ramam says, use it for Shabbos candles. Why? If Hashem commands us to erase his name to preserve peace between man and his wife, rather light the Shabbos candle, which will provide light. It'll make the Shabbos suda pleasant and enjoyable. It'll promote Shalom bias. Do that rather than doing Parsume Nisa, sanctifying Hashem's name. Because there is no greater ideal in the world than peace, than Shalom, Shalom bias. And ultimately, that's where Hashem's name receives the greatest sanctification, the greatest Kiddush Hashem. That is the most powerful form of Kiddush Hashem we can do, keeping Shalom Bayes. Have a good night and a wonderful Shabbos.